The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa, your host. Today's episode is part two with my discussion with Kelly Monahan, who is the Thought Leadership Research Principal Director at Accenture Research. We're joining into the section of my interview with Kelly as it relates to the different models that companies are considering to bring people back into the office or create hybrid models or go completely remote. Take a listen. And do you feel like the people who do, you know, they go back to traditional models, they think they might be able to compensate with higher pay to get people to do that? Yeah, I love that question. It's funny, we were in a debate earlier this week on a company that just did that and said that they were going to pay people less if they didn't come back into the office. It's one of those things that when I think about, and not to go too deep in economics, but that's a very rational economic move that was really popular in the late 70s that said, we're going to incentivize people to work in maybe not preferred conditions. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford was a you know, master at that, you know, telling people, hey, I'm not going to change the factory conditions, but I'll pay you, you know, 5X and all of a sudden people start showing back up to work. There's going to be a segment very much in the short term that very much that will work in terms of incentive and especially people who need that. In the long run, we've seen time and time again in the last 30 years with advancements in behavioral science and behavioral economics, people's motivation for work in terms of financial incentives, once it reaches a certain amount, drops dramatically. It's diminishing returns. And instead, they're going to seek out, where do I feel dignified as an individual? Where do I feel that I'm actually getting meaningful engagements with people at my work? Gallup has famously said, you know, it's all about the manager. It's all about your leadership experience. If you've got really bad leaders, it doesn't matter how much you pay me. I'm going to leave over time because my ability to be human is compromised. Short term, I think it will work. Long term, I think they're creating a very dangerous strategy. And quite frankly, it's actually doing worse for people because it's, it's crowding out all those other intrinsic needs that we have that can't be compensated when we dictate you have to be, you know, back to the old paradigm. It doesn't work. And you're incentivizing based on economics. Absolutely. And this, again, we're human. We actually aren't that rational at times and we don't always do well with incentives in the long term. So, you know, it's it's frustrating to me as a researcher who's been in this space for a while. You know, I've been studying, quote, unquote, the future of work for the last seven years and how little of IO psychology, behavioral science is actually brought into our leadership decision-making in boardrooms. Because I do think if we just move the needle a bit and understanding how people behave, what incentivizes us, what actually matters, I think we'd have very different organizations today. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, it's interesting that we're even talking about dignity and ethic and you know being a good human. I don't recall having conversations related to the future of work and incorporating those types of concepts in the discussion. I mean, they're there, but by no means is it completely ignored. I mean, you know, but even during my MBA program, we didn't really talk about that. We talked about 
bottom line, evaluate, you know, all the stuff that we've trained that we've learned in MBA school. Yeah. And now you're definitely going to be hitting a (laughs) hot button with me because, you know, again, I always ask the question, like, how did we end up here? You know, of again, and I told you a little bit about my upbringing, what I observed, you know, at a very formative age of of all these people losing their jobs and, and work just being seen as this very, you know, dramatic experience. And you're absolutely right. We are still very much, we think about, again, from a philosophical assumption of how we're actually operating every day and thinking about work in the business realm, we have not updated our philosophical assumptions. Every other discipline, medicine, even at times we've talked about economics with moving more towards a behavioral approach with their models. But yet our MBA, business administration, the way we teach people to lead an organization is focused on four principles, planning, organizing, directing, and you know, leading resources. That doesn't work. Doesn't work today. That is an old model that you know worked compromisingly. You know, not even that great when you actually look back at the labor strikes that were happening back in the 20s and 30s when this all risen. The government actually outlawed Frederick Taylor and his way of doing business because they thought it was dehumanized. It's actually, if you go back and look at the records in court, yep. dehumanized method. And yet today, you look at our MBA programs, it's still anchored all the way back to that. And most people don't realize it. They just think this is business doesn't have to be this way. No other profession does not actually operate this way. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And are you seeing newer companies embracing those principles more like as a natural way to build and plan their businesses? Or it just, you know, I'm just wondering, are the new leaders that are emerging, are they different in the thought process as a result of where society is today? I think it's a great question. It was funny. I was on a panel yesterday with an executive at Zappi, Ryan Berry, and he was really inspiring because he is trying to lead business as CEO just so differently or as president of the company, so differently than what he's inherited and learned. And was really open and honest about scaling that. So you start off, you're a small startup. I think of a, a high-tech company too that started off very innovative, very much down, you know, we call it down with hierarchy at Accenture, just going to do work more human. That becomes so hard as you scale. The more and you know, the further away you get from your employee population, the harder it is to have these human kindness and compassion and dignity. It becomes so much more transactional in order to scale. So I think a question we have to ask ourselves in the future of work is what is going to be our success metric? If it continues to be shareholder price, then you know what the MBA curriculum, directing people, telling them what to do, organizing, that will be your most efficient way to do that. But because we're working now in a digital economy, I don't think that economy scales anymore that way. And instead, what's going to scale is hyper growth, innovation, creativity, actually creating high knowledge spillover environments where people can do things very differently. And that does require a new leadership playbook. How you do that at scale, I think is going to become the number one question in the future of work. Let's talk about the digital economy. I mean, we've gone through the agricultural, industrial services, and now we're at the digital economy. And you know, what's different about this evolution of where we are in terms of economic definition and kind of foundational principles than the other segments or classifications of where the evolution has been? I love that question because that is the one thing we try to accentuate research anyways to keep asking yourself what's actually different today uh, because a lot of times it just becomes noise and you maybe come up with a different terminology but the same idea. But today, I do think we're marked by a few profound differences that we've never seen before. So as we think about the transition for people from an agriculture to industrial economy, there was a learning curve, but it was a pretty short learning curve. You can quickly train someone in person how to go on you know, manufacturing lines. 
We then took those people and then transitioned skills into the service economy. Again, as we think about services, not necessarily a big runway when it comes to learning how to do the job. A little bit longer than manufacturing, not quite as long. When you talk about a digital economy, we are talking about completely changing the skill set. There is very little transferability between the skill set of what you had to what's actually going to be required and needed to do your job. And so that to me is one of the profound differences is how are we going to make sure we create long runways in our organizations to actually do this right and not leave people behind? We have not seen this kind of transition in terms of skilling and the previous transitions. The second thing that we're talking about is actually how do you create value? You know, in manufacturing, you do that efficiently. You do that at scale. And the services, customer's king is what we were told. And you put the customer at the forefront. Today in the digital economy, we think it's intelligence. How do you make people as intelligent and as the organization as intelligent as possible? And again, you can only do that because of digital technologies. You actually can make visible the invisible through data. Again, a completely different skill set and a different way to organize your company and measure success. Because to get to intelligence isn't going to be through efficiency. It's not going to be through cost cutting. It's actually going to be through investing in R&D and innovation and these upskilling programs to make that happen. And so I think it's a really interesting time. The last thing I'll say is we went through this localization in manufacturing, this globalization in the service economy. Digital, it's both localized and globalized. And the pandemic has really shed light on this. And that's a big economic trend we're trying to figure out. Is this expansion going to continue to be globalized? Or are we going to see the platforms, these digital economies instead take over and really help revitalize local communities? And especially with remote workers, high-skilled workers are moving, at least in the States, into some smaller local cities and towns. And so are we going to see this different internal talent mobility and different skills go to different locations? And they can do that now. And we can have this local revitalization in communities because they're actually being enabled by digital platforms. So it's really like interesting times to see this all play out. It could go in a lot of different ways. It also then speaks to the education system starting pre-K, skills that we're teaching and how do they prep for the digital economy? That's a whole nother hot topic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's going to be a whole nother podcast, but I agree with you. If we continue to teach children just to answer right questions, we're going to be in a lot of trouble because it's actually about asking, how do we teach people to have curiosity and to fail and be okay with that and have the gravitas to, to still bounce back and, uh, you know, come back with new ideas. So huge reframe needed in our education systems. The one thing about the digital economy, I also would add, I think, and I'd love to get your perspective is that there is a lot more accountability because everybody can comment, weigh in. There is no kind of curtain where you can operate and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. The digital economy kind of balances a bit in terms of corporate and employee engagement. I think that's a really profound trend that you picked up on. It's something that we saw within our data too. As we, again, I look at these people, how are these people thriving? You know, what kind of companies are they working in? Transparency was one of the biggest drivers too of just how the company operates. And you're absolutely right. These platforms and our visibility to interact with each other in a very open format, even within organizations, the dialogue, you know, you know, whether it's Yammer, Slack, whatever the platform is, Microsoft Teams, we're having conversations and leaving a really big digital exhaust <laughs> behind <laughs> as well. So right. everything's, you know, being recorded, but it does provide a profound level of accountability and transparency. We're getting more insights into how people are paying equity. Companies are getting more and more comfortable actually using that as a talent, you know, attraction and retention strategy. And so again, silver lining, there's always pros and cons to all of these and unintended consequences. 
But a pro is, again, that intelligence aspect. It's actually making us more intelligent and allowing us to make better decisions because we have profound visibility now. Okay, so let's be a little bit prescriptive here, or at least provide some insight as to what should leaders be thinking about? And leaders could be leading yourself. It could be an organization, a leader of a team, whatever. Whoever wants to lead, what should they be thinking about as it relates to the future work? Yeah, I think there's three things I comb through all the data of what's top of mind for leaders. And maybe even as me, I lead a team right now of about 12 researchers of what's you know keeping us up at night. Number one, I think as it thinks about ourselves as people is choice and flexibility and really understanding what that means. I think so few people, and I'm a little bit surprised by this, actually know what they want and their you know flexibility and choice. So making sure you're coming in order to be empowered and have these conversations with your workforce and leaders is what do I want? What does that, to your point, what does that hybrid look for me? What is that best fit? And making sure as a leader, you're having those conversations, one with yourself to have that frame, but two with your team. What does that choice and visibility look like? And keeping top of mind, again, if we give everyone exactly what they want, we might actually end up creating more inequality. So making sure at all times you have that inclusive lens with that sense of choice. The second thing is I very much what keeps me up at night is the digital skills gap that we've been talking about. We are in a digital economy. People that are going to get the higher wages, command that premium, have better lives, more meaningful work are going to be those that very much have the education and skills necessary to do those jobs. So as part of the skilling equation as a leader, how do you making sure you create the capacity and time to upskill yourself and give your people the time and capacity to upskill? You know, one of the strongest motivators I see in our research is people craving and wanting to skill, but saying, I don't have the time, I'm fatigued, I'm burned out. So as a leader, we have to start creating environments where learning is at the forefront and not badge of busyness, efficiency, fire drills. And then the third thing is, as we've talked about that we haven't talked about, you're absolutely right in the future work dialogue, it was all about technology and what jobs are going to be automated. Instead, it's how do we use technology to actually bring more dignity to people's jobs? And to do that, we have to create more compassion and kindness in the way that we operate and lead. People today, you know, again, we've talked a lot about mental health, probably some of the lowest scores I've ever seen. We've been tracking this for about two years now with our net better off. People are struggling. And so coming in and doing business the old way that we talked about with really command and control and hierarchy and, you know, this is the way I do it, as I said, really doesn't bring out the best in people. And so I do think we've got an opportunity to really rewrite the leadership playbook that we actually win by being kind and that there's no brownie points anymore for being hyper-competitive and trying to compete with each other. And, you know, this pay for performance culture as we've all, you know, created, we're in the driver's seat. We get to rewrite the rules right now and organizations and HR individuals are giving people the ability to do that. And so the more we can do that and bring humanity and kindness to the forefront, I think that's going to give us a lot of long-term wins both from an economic perspective, but also just from an individual enlightened perspective. It'll make us better people at home, better people, better customers. And I think for the first time, we're really seeing that come to the forefront. So in summary, yep, it's about being kind and compassionate in the way we lead. It's about giving people the time and capacity to learn. And it's making sure, you know, as we think about, you know, just this new environment that we're in, that as leaders, we're providing the right resources for our people to take advantage of this and making sure we understand what they mean by choice and flexibility and having those conversations before making assumptions. Those are fantastic areas to focus on. And I'll just say, you know, again, work with a lot of different organizations. And I think it's important also, if you're an employee, an organization, when you think about what you want, 
you know, that's sometimes the hardest thing to figure out, right? So yes, your leader's trying to figure out what they want from an organizational perspective, but even as an individual, it is really hard to know what you want. And I always encourage people to really focus on thinking about that because it's easy to react to what people tell you and what the solutions are and to pick at, oh, that's not good. I don't like that. But as an individual, it's important to spend time on that as well. And it's a hard, I think it's a really hard question. It is. And I will say, I will put a plug for a better off framework because that's what we, what I tried to do with that research is create a framing and language to help people define what they need from work. I used to go, when we all used to travel, we used to always start out presentations with, you know, what motivates you and everyone, most people would say paycheck, but that's actually not when we think about it, when you see the data. And so we created these six dimensions based on 40,000 people's responses, hundred literature review articles in the academic world and found these six things. People need all six. So yes, you need financial, you need a paycheck and it needs to be a fair paycheck. It actually, the absolute value matters much less than how you think it's fair employable and learning opportunities. You need to make sure you're working for a company that's keeping you employable and upskilling you. But the ones that actually mostly drive us are relational. We need good relationships in the workplace. We need to work again for those kind leaders. It's emotional mental health. Is our job burning us out? Is it actually helping us in terms of mental and emotional, you know, well-being? And as people, we need purpose. So to what degree is our company providing purpose? If you're able to focus on these six dimensions and really articulate with your leader, which of those six might be primary for you at any point in time, it's going to be different. Those needs are fluid, but it helps provide a framing to say, hey, it's much more than a paycheck. Here's my needs. And here's actually what's under stress today. How can you help? That's fantastic. I love that. And then let's talk about upskilling. Again, I think there's a lot of tools out there. I think people are tired and as leaders, it doesn't have to be a full program that costs thousands. And it could be a small workshop of let's learn Adobe, or I go back to like incremental baby steps for the leader, but also the employee that they can take on their own as well. And at times it could be refreshing and you could be proactive about that. And then obviously the third thing is, it's interesting when we think about kindness and compassion, you know, I do wonder over time, how do we actually measure that? Yes. And I think that's moving beyond the employee engagement scores, you know, that we typically a lot of organizations are anchored onto, which is great. I mean, it very much, we've got to keep measuring our employee experiences, but I agree. I think getting just from a research perspective, you know, moving our, you know, the way that we design instruments and what we actually measure, actually being able to, and again, we've done that a bit through 360s at times, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of cultures out there that collect this feedback, maybe get feedback on how the person's behaving, but yet still reward based on competency or sales goals or whatever the case may be. So I think the more that we actually move compensation and the way that people are being treated and measured, and again, to your point, the word you use, transparency, accountability, the more that shareholder reports include metrics around how leaders are being perceived, diversity and inclusion, et cetera, more of those people side of the business, the more what we pay, you know, and, and how we measure ends up becoming emphasis. So a lot of work to do on what those metrics actually are. And some things, you know, it, it's been famously said, shouldn't and can't be measured. And so what are those things that are going to be cultural and that people, again, vote with their feet where they choose to say, this isn't acceptable to me, you know, I'm going to go choose to work elsewhere. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. I absolutely love the work that you've done and I look forward to having you back on the podcast. Oh, I would love to. This is great. It gets me out of my research bubble. So thank you so much for uh, having me today. Thank you. And if, they, and if people want to learn more about the research, where should they go? 
Yeah. So Accenture.com has all of our insights. You can you know, look at our future of work and I am constantly posting on LinkedIn of all of our Accenture research. So feel free to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at Monaghan K. I will make sure constantly updating and making it easy to find our stuff. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. Exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.